I'm Michael Klein, Executive Editor of Econofact, a nonpartisan web-based publication of the Fletcher School at Tufts University. At Econofact, we bring key facts and incisive analysis to the national debate on economic and social policies, publishing work from leading economists across the country. You can learn more about us and see our work at www.econofact.org. One pervasive disruption of COVID was the move to remote learning for kindergarten through high school students. Many view 2020 to 2021 as a lost school year. Studies demonstrate the extent to which children have missed out on mastering fundamental reading and math skills and the extent to which their learning has backslid during the pandemic. This has been especially true for students who do not have access to technology or adequate places to do schoolwork at home, a group in which low-income students and students of color are overrepresented. The government has made resources available to school districts to address these challenges, but the question arises of how to best deploy these monies. My guest today on Econofact Chats is one of the country's leading experts on education policy and education finance, Professor Nora Gordon of the McCourt School of Public Policy at Georgetown University. Nora, welcome to Econofact Chats. Thanks for having me, Michael. Nora, to start out, what do we know about the effect of the move to online instruction during the pandemic on students' learning? How big was the learning loss? Are there good estimates of this, or are we operating on, sorry, sorry forgive the pun, educated guesses here? Uh, I appreciate the pun, and there are good estimates, and those estimates are absolutely educated guesses. Uh, so both are true. Um, the real issue here is that testing was much less widespread um, in the past year than usual, and we only know the test scores for the students who were being tested. So those were the students who were enrolled in school and in the districts that were doing testing. There are also differences in who's testing online versus in person. But overall, the picture we're seeing from those not representative data is much less dire than initial expectations, more like one to two months of lagging in reading and math. But as you say, that might not be representative. And there probably are differences in the effects of this past year's remote learning across students by income groups or by racial and ethnic groups. Absolutely. And the studies that are coming out are reporting on those. Um, you do see these lags. And really, I would call it a learning lag rather than a learning loss because it's just a, a relative. You know, students are learning just less than we would have expected. Um, it's showing up across all demographic groups. But those gaps are definitely uh, largest for students who are economically disadvantaged. Um, also, you know, seeing gaps for students of color. For English language learners, uh, remote learning posed real challenges for these students and also when they were in person, real challenges with masks. Um, people are also very concerned about the impact of COVID on students with disabilities. And there, it's not just the achievement scores that we see, but also what was happening with students being identified and assessed and the types of services that they were getting. Um, with all of these groups, you know, it's sort of not just how was it going 
with remote learning, but also what were the odds that you were in remote learning versus being in school? Lots of students were in school, um, but students of color and economically disadvantaged students were likely to be in more remote settings for longer. Nora, even before the pandemic, you focused on evidence-based educational reform. You recently published a book with Carrie Conaway called Common Sense Evidence, The Education Leader's Guide to Using Data and Research. What was your motivation for writing this book? We were really motivated to write this book because we thought that people at the local level, education leaders, need to make decisions and evaluate evidence for themselves. And there's a lot of people asking right now with COVID, what should districts be doing with this federal money? What are the best things to do? And I think a lot of the way this conversation is happening is kind of implying a belief that we know a lot more about what works than we do, or that things that work in one place are going to work every place. And Carrie and I really believe that different districts are going to need to, you know, choose things that make sense for them, which could be different at different points of time, um, and track how things are working. Ultimately, we hope that this doesn't just generate demand for more evidence, but that people start producing more evidence, people who aren't researchers. Why do local leaders need to get involved in this? Aren't there sort of national clearinghouses of information? So there are, I mean, for years we've had the What Works Clearinghouse, which the U.S. Department of Education funds. And what those things are really good for are um, if you imagine a randomized control trial of, you know, say one curriculum against another curriculum or an after-school program, you know, versus no after-school program. But those evaluations work best when the thing that you're evaluating is really tightly defined. You can say what the treatment is, like think of a medical clinical trial where you're saying this is the cholesterol drug. It's hard to have an analogy like that in education where things are implemented so differently in different places. So that's like the common complaint about randomized control trials uh, regarding external validity. And I imagine that's really a big case here where you have school districts that are very different than themselves, whereas, as you said, with medication, it's not that bodies are so different or you can try to control for that a little bit better. Yeah, you have that. And I think that, um, you know, it comes from this concern with internal validity that there has been tons of education research that really doesn't allow for causal inference. And people just saying things like, well, this is how students were scoring at the beginning of the year. And then we use this reading program. And now this is how they're doing at the end of the year. And this is really like a common design. You'll see a lot of education research that looks like that. So the idea with the What Works Clearinghouse is let's introduce some more rigor so we kind of believe what we see more, but it, it is necessarily limited in the types of things that it can evaluate. All right, Nora, we're getting a little nerdy here. We're talking about external validity and internal um, consistency and so on. So let's think about a broader thing, money. We're looking at a situation now where funds are being made available to school districts. What kind of money are we talking about here? Yeah, we're talking about a lot of money, and this, of course, is of interest to many people. Um, Right now, we're talking about almost $200 billion in federal aid, and this is interesting to the districts that are getting a lot of it, um, where they, you know, 
there's been lots of reporting on Detroit, one of the poorest cities in the country where they're going to be getting more than $20,000 per student. Um, but then there's lots of districts where they're getting a couple hundred dollars per student and think that the average district is spending about $13,000 per student per year. So there's a huge range here in how much money districts are getting. So in the context of federal support for education, this is really big. This is big. This is about 12 times bigger than the Title I program, which um, is typically supporting um, school districts based on poverty. So Title I is identifying places where you have very high poverty rates. Is that correct? Uh, sort of. Title I is sending money to almost all school districts, and it's sending more money per pupil to poorer school districts. But in this case, is it the situation that moderately poor districts aren't getting as much as they might? That's right. And, you know, you could sort of think about this and ask if this money is to help districts recover costs that they incurred with COVID, do you think these are costs that they incurred for all students or how much do you want it to be targeted for students who are in poverty? Um, or And also, you know, kind of this question of how much cushion do districts have to provide this stuff for themselves. Um, and the way Congress went with focusing on Title I, they were really um, focusing on equity, trying to be redistributive with this money. At the same time, there are a lot of districts that have spent a lot of money trying to you know, deal with additional costs of COVID, many of them to operate in person, and now they're not getting that much back. So what do you think, Nora, about the way these funds should be deployed? I guess your previous answer suggests that it may or may not be deployed in the same way as it would be deployed before the pandemic. Are the steps now different from what we would have seen before the pandemic to have the money deployed well, or is it more or less the same? Uh, again, it's it's sort of both. I mean, to some extent, districts always should be thinking, what are their local needs? And then how can they spend the money in the way that makes sense for them? What you really need to think about here is that things were not so great before COVID. Um, only, you know, about 35% of fourth graders were assessed as scoring proficient on the NAEP. This is the nation's report card in reading, 41% in math. This is prior to COVID. So if you're thinking that, you know, you should suddenly be coming up with some great new idea to make up for this learning loss. Districts were thinking about these things before. So it's a little bit like what we see in other areas where there were tensions or problems and COVID exacerbated them or accelerated them, but they were there before anyway, right? That's absolutely the case. The needs were there before. How might districts be thinking differently about these funds? Yeah, it is an interesting opportunity for a lot of school districts to have these funds because I think the way politically a lot of the budgeting goes in school districts is, you know, something gets built into the budget and then you keep funding that thing. And you have different pots of revenue from different federal programs, different state fund programs, and people think of it as kind of their money for their program. Um, so just the fact that this is new money from a different source kind of opens things up. Um for those districts that are getting a lot of money, which is, of course, not all the districts, 
it, it really opens up some things. Like, and you hear people talking a lot about HVAC, um, you know, if you want to do some big expenditure like that. The thing that's a little different here is that these funds are going to end. It's not like Title I, which you get every year and you have a basic sense that it, it generally, you know, stays the same or goes up a little bit. Um, so this is kind of a one-time funding amount, which districts can spread over several years, um, but they're not going to want to make a lot of ongoing commitments with them. So they're not going to want to hire teachers who have tenure, who they have to keep paying. Um, they're thinking of things that relate to contracting, uh, or kind of one-time investments. You mentioned HVAC. We have a very interesting memo by Jisung Park about how air conditioning in schools really is important for students' performance in schools that don't have air conditioning. It's not just a luxury. It's really very important for students to be able to learn. So some of our listeners might think, well, do they really need air conditioning? But it's a really important part of the infrastructure. And that suggests that this is not a one-size-fits-all policy, but different districts need very different types of assistance. How does that get written into law? Uh, it gets written into law in kind of a messy way. I mean, what you would really like to write is do what makes sense for you and be a good actor. And th this is really an ongoing challenge in education policy. You know, Congress gives out education money all the time. It's been an issue in Title I. And so um, sort of try to work around it with evidence mandates and suggest that districts, um, you know, states need to submit plans and they suggest that districts do local needs assessment and make a logic model. But with all of these things, you know, you can sort of do it and have many different outcomes. Um, so it's, it's a hard line to walk between allowing for local flexibility and uh, really ensuring that the funds are spent in the most cost-effective way. One example that comes to mind, because there's been a lot of discussion about it lately, is the evidence that tutoring is very helpful, but tutoring is really resource intensive, and the ability to have tutoring is quite different across different districts. Yeah, I'm glad that you mentioned tutoring. I mean, tutoring is comes up all the time in this discussion. I feel like tutoring and HVAC are sort of two things that, that come to mind a lot, summer school also. Um, but, but tutoring has a much stronger evidence base than summer learning programs do. And in the past, it's been um, sort of dismissed as just out of reach in terms of cost. Uh, and some of these programs where you'd be thinking about $2,500 to $3,000 per pupil, say, if you're thinking about um, what's called high dosage tutoring, so that you have a low ratio, maybe one tutor to two to three students, same tutor with the kids all year, um, at least three times a week built into the school day. You know, it takes a lot. It's a high touch program to make it effective. Um, but I think actually that the cash has been the biggest limitation and uh, there's there's a lot of groups working now to help districts scale tutoring. So I think that this could be a good moment for it to work for districts that have lots of um, federal aid. Nora, we've been talking about evidence-based research. To what extent is that based on standardized testing? And do you think that there's been a move against standardized testing in the wake of the pandemic? In April, the former New York City Schools Chancellor as well as the Massachusetts Teacher Association, encourage parents to opt their children out of states 
state tests during the pandemic? Well, first of all, your first question about um, to what extent is the evidence-based research based on standardized testing a lot. Uh, you know, you need to have an outcome. If you want to see how does something affect student outcomes, you need outcomes. Um, and standardized tests are a very common source of them. Although you have more people now looking at other things also like attendance um, or, you know, disciplinary outcomes, people link records to see what happens to students in the labor market years down the line. That th There's a lot of other interesting things that you can look at, but standardized testing is super important for this. Um, I, I think it's a little premature to say that responses against testing during the pandemic are going to be with us later. Um, I just think when students are back in school and parents are not sitting right next to the Zoom, things might look different, but it's not a new um, set of concerns. And, you know, to be fair, the minutes during the day are the most valuable resource that educators have. If you think of a budget constraint for a teacher, that's the really binding budget constraint that they have. Uh, so I think for both educators and students and parents, you know, they really want to see what are they getting for this testing. And I don't think that's a case that has been made very effectively. Nora, if you had a magic wand and could wave it and have one big change for educational policy in the United States, what would you use your one big change for? Oh, that's such a great question, Michael. Um, I think it applies not just to education, but to lots of things. I wish that we could all sort of step back from some of our cognitive biases about what we think works and come to things with a more open mind and a less political take on how things are actually playing out for students. And what would perhaps one of the biggest existing biases be that you would like to see under greater scrutiny? Right now, I'm getting very interested in math education. There's been a lot of reporting in, in the last few years about the reading wars, which, you know, for decades, people have been talking about the reading wars and uh, the role of phonics versus whole language. And there's sort of similar stuff brewing in math. And this is something where um, the way people are talking about it, it makes it hard to get in in what I would view as an evidence-based way because the positions are so strongly held. And of course, math and STEM education is seen as really vital for people's future work opportunities and for the country as a whole for its productivity. Yeah, so it's um, disturbing when you see kind of districts and states kind of walking back from advanced math. And what about a more vocational um, aim of education? Do you think that's something that is important or is it just an excuse that people are making and it really, there are other things that are much more important than that? I think that's really important and you sort of keep hearing people talking about it. And I feel like for, you know, over a decade, you kind of keep waiting for it to take off. Um, but 
a, a lot of questions about, you know, just making sure that you have the right programs matched to the right local labor markets. Uh, but this seems like something that, you know, is, is sort of low hanging fruit. Are there any good examples of that that people could point to? I know we've been talking about how things are local specific, but are there examples of that kind of program that you think works well and maybe is worth, if not emulating, at least considering carefully for other areas? I cannot think of one off the top of my head, but I would recommend that you look at this. Uh, I remember a Hamilton Project conference where they were talking about a lot of these. Well, Nora, thank you very much for speaking with me today about this vitally important issue that's affecting our children and ultimately our country as well. And thank you for the work that you're doing in this very important area. Thanks for having me, Michael, and thanks for all of your work with Econifact. I use it with my students. It's good to hear. Maybe that's what we should be doing, have everybody use Econifact more. This has been Econifact Chats. To learn more about Econifact and to see the work on our site, you can log into www.econifact.org. You can subscribe on our site to our newsletter that will let you know when we publish new memos and new podcast episodes. Please feel free to share this podcast and our memos with friends, colleagues, and on social media. Econifact is a publication of the Fletcher School at Tufts University. Thanks for listening.